The Talkin' Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. The Golf Society is founded on the belief that the latest golf trends, fashion and concepts shouldn't be compromised, but shared with every golfer. Shop online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 24 of the Talking Golf History podcast, the underrated champion, John Ball Jr. Stories such as this one are the reason why I started this podcast. Many of you at home, at work, or in your car are aware of the triumphs of the likes of Woods, Nicholas, Palmer, Player, Hogan, Sneed, and Nelson, and perhaps even Walter Hagen and Bobby Jones. But it's the stories of the John Ball Juniors of the world that draw my attention. How is it that outside of the United Kingdom, the heroics of Ball are seldom celebrated? Consider the following facts. No player from Europe has ever won more major championships. And in the entire history of the game, only four men have eclipsed John Ball Jr.'s major championship tally, and those immortals are Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, Bobby Jones, and Walter Hagen. John Ball Jr.'s nine major championships tie him with two other golfing immortals, Ben Hogan and Gary Player. Not enough to impress you? Try this one on for size. No amateur living or dead has ever won more amateur majors than John Ball Jr. Even the man they tab as the greatest amateur golfer who ever lived Bobby Jones won six amateur majors. John Ball won eight British amateurs and never crossed the Atlantic to compete in the U.S. amateur. John Ball won his first amateur championship at the age of 27 and won his eighth at the age of 50, making him the oldest man to have ever won a major championship. Though many of the history books claim that that distinction belongs to Julius Boros, who won the 1968 PGA Championship at the age of 48. John Ball was the first amateur golfer to ever win a professional major, winning the 1890 Open Championship, and in doing so, becoming the first Englishman to hoist up the claret jug, essentially leading the way for the likes of Harry Varden and J.H. Taylor, who would follow his amateur dominance with a professional dominance the world had not seen since the rivalries between the towns of St. Andrews and Musselboro. Today on the show, I welcome Alistair Noakes, author of Hoy Lake Hero, to recount the history of John Ball Jr., the man who set the mark for every amateur who would ever follow him. Alistair Noakes is the captain of the Royal Liverpool Golf Club Village Play, where he enjoys playing as an artisan member over the famous Hoylay links. Here he works the course for his membership as part of the club's old traditions, which go back to 1895 when local fishermen and craftsmen were given the right to play the course in return for their labor. His hands-on approach has helped cement his love for Lynx golf, 
and for the rich part that Royal Liverpool Golf Club has played in the development of the amateur and professional game. Alistair first started playing golf with Hickory Clubs at the age of 11, but when he later discovered that they were signed by J.H. Taylor, the five-time Open champion, he turned his interest into a passion for discovering more about the rich traditions of the game. He is a member of the British Golf Collectors Society. Alistair has also released a new book, Hoyt Lake Hero, available now, The Remarkable Story of the Life of John Ball, Britain's Greatest Amateur Golfer, and in my mind, possibly the greatest amateur golfer of all time. Alistair, thank you so much for joining me on the 24th edition of the Talking Golf History Podcast. It's very. I'm very pleased to to, to be uh, on your on your show, um, Connor. And you know, uh, talking golf has, has a lot to add to the game of golf. So I'm very pleased to be with you today. Well, thank you so much. Um, before we join, jump into the amazing career of John Ball, I was hoping you might explain to our listeners across the world what is an artisans club, and perhaps talk a little bit about how the artisan club at Hoy Lake came about. It's a very good question, um, Connor, because uh, artisan golf is relatively unique, I feel, to to Britain. Um, uh, it started initially up in Scotland, but um, certainly as far as England was concerned, um, the concept basically is that when a lot of clubs first started in the Royal Liverpool Golf Club, uh, Oilek as we often know it, uh, started in 1869, um, there were the mechanization in golf hadn't really come in and to maintain a golf course at a high standard you needed extra labor um so the the artisan is is a member is a, a member who works on the course for his membership so he's put um, and I do this every couple of weeks on the golf course. I'm uh, putting uh, sand and seed in the old divots, um, bringing nurture to the soil, um, life to the links, and putting something back in return for us being able to have the chance to play on the course for um, uh, a very, very reduced membership. So that tradition started um in at the, the Royal Liverpool Golf Club in uh, 1895. Uh, the course was actually started in 1869. And in some respects, it's got quite a fascinating history at, uh, at the club itself because the actual club uh, was originally a, a race, uh, an area of flat, relatively flat land, but it was a race course. And of course, racing and golf didn't really easily mix. Um, so there came an impasse where um, there was vandalization taking place on the course and the golfers pulled together the, the local fishermen, the villagers and said, look, can we come to some arrangement? And the arrangement was that we could play on the course as artisans um, with uh, with restricted times, and that's been going for 125 years now. That's fantastic, right? I love. I just love that whole concept of that. I wish we had that more in here in the United States. Yeah, it, it works, you know. And there are 35 artisan golf clubs in Britain. 
uh, in, in England, should I say, and uh, we have annual um, national competitions, the Northern Artisans Championship really? and the Art- Southern cool. Artisans. Yeah, yeah. and it's, uh, we have a common theme. Most of us are fishermen and, or, or artisans or joiners or, or whatever, uh, but we work, work on the course and we love it. Uh, and we have a great, uh, great sort of uh, relationship with the, the parent club, the main club. That's great. Um, I'm going to jump right into the book. I, I must say, I really enjoyed reading your book, Hoy Lake Hero. What inspired you to write yeah, this book? Yeah, thank you. Yo, you bet. <laughs> um, well, the inspiration really came partly from being an artisan member for, for 16 years, working on the course. You, you get to feel the course. You get to, it becomes part of you in many ways. Um, and it brings you to, yeah, it, it's, um, you know, who are these great players who have played the course, um, you know, in the past? You, you talk to their of um you know the the tiger woods is the jack nicholas's um and you know the rory mcelroy's but we go back a long way and um i started sort of getting more and more interested in that and um and the club itself has got some incredible uh great uh, large leather-bound volumes of newspaper that go back to 1880 of that the, the the secretary of the day had kept in scrapbooks um from every from all around the world virtually commenting commentating on golf and there was a, a hive of information and um about many things one of which was john ball who was who was uh, a junior member at the club um when it first started so in your book it's described as a historic novel can you walk us through what it means in terms of storytelling versus say a true biography yeah the um I the book has has got dialogue in it, um, but uh, no one can can actually say whether that dialogue took place. But my aim of the book was was really to uh, bring John John Ball to life as a character through doing as much research as possible, getting the facts there together, and then reading a little bit between the lines, but not too much. Uh, that it's it becomes a fantasy sort of um, novel. It's it's, it's as accurate as, as it could possibly be, but bring it to life to make it um, hopefully appealing uh, to the to the reader in a way that uh, a factual history, uh, a biography of a, a player can't quite do. So that was that was the main aim, Connor, to to be able to do that and bring him to life as a character, who he was, who he played with in the settings that um, and the time that that golf was a different era, um, you know, in, in those days. Well, I, I agree. And I, I think it does bring him to life. It's certainly not a dry history of, your, like you said, the Hoylake hero, John Ball. It's really a vibrant book of, of, of the story of, you know, basically how he grew up around golf and golf kind of became a part of him, if that makes any sense. Yes, it did. Um, it, it, you know, uh, thank you. I, I, I hope I've been, managed to do so because um, he he lived his life um, as a when golf came. He was born in 1861, and when the the golf course came in 1869, he was a seven eight year old then, and he must have been inspired by uh, these people playing this new game. He'd never seen before, and he was the son of uh, the 
hotel owner, which uh, the Royal Hotel, his father also named um, John Ball himself, um, but he owned the, the hotel where a lot of golfers stayed. The railways, of course, had come. Big boom in the railway, uh, expansion of the railways. And people were coming. They were out to, to partake of the waters or, um, on the on the, the local local beaches here and um, staying and playing golf. And it must have been exciting for a young young boy, 78-year-old boy, to, to see all this happening in front of him and um, not want to, you know, take part and be part of that. So that was, that was the seed that must have been sown um, there to say, well, you know, I've got to be part of this as a young lad, you know, um, and that's that's where the sort of novel starts in many ways. Do you think his introduction to golf is it kind of purely by chance? I mean, is John Ball is he is he a golfer? If the Liverpool Golf Club doesn't open in 1869, you know, and, and it's the Royal Hotel, as you mentioned, is basically the clubhouse for quite some time. Is he even a golfer if the club isn't established right in his backyard? I, I doubt if he would have been, you know, I, I really don't. Um, we, we look at, uh, at where Liverpool is and where the Wirral is, which is um, uh, 10 miles away, where the, the club actually is on a peninsula of land. It was it was a farming village. It was a, uh, a fishing village and uh, back from the from the, the, the village further inland it was just a farming community beyond that so golf had never been seen anywhere near here so he wouldn't have ever probably experienced golf possibly throughout his life had he had this club not suddenly sprung up on his doorstep so um i think in answer to your question it, it was it was happenstance and um, he took that opportunity up and uh, made a great success of, of his career by doing so. Yeah. You know, what I, ne- I didn't realize prior to reading your book was how interconnected John Ball and Royal Liverpool's stories are to the famous Morris family. Would you mind sharing a little bit of those Morris connections? Because they're fascinating to me how interconnected the Morris family is with the story of Royal Liverpool. Yes, you're right there. And and it's something that I discovered for myself. And it wasn't till delving deeper that I recognized, realized this. And I thought this, this, this is fascinating. And, and um, it's part of, uh, of his story. It's part of the story of golf. It's part of the story of um, the Royal Liverpool Golf Club. Yes, indeed. It's um, old Tom Morris, the, the grandfather of golf, of course, uh, St. Andrew's man, um, his brother um, was George Morris, who was professional, I think, at Carnoustie at the time. And he uh, is encouraged, along with Robert Chambers, who's an Edinburgh man, to come down south. Um, the Liverpool was booming uh, as a city. Uh, uh, the slave trade, uh, the cotton industry over in the States um, was bringing all these um, – uh, potential opportunities to the, the burgeoning port of Liverpool and Scotsmen were moving south along with the railways and uh, John Morris, far, um, sorry, George Morris, uh, brother of old Tom Morris, comes down with uh, some rich merchants uh, 
Scottish merchants and espoused this area of land down here, just outside Liverpool. And he sets up the course along with Robert Chambers, lays out the first nine holes of the course. And he brings with him his son, his 18, 17, 18-year-old son, uh, Jack Morris, um, to, to help out and com comes down with him. And he had been... Um, helping as an apprentice, I think, up in Scotland with him. And he sees an opportunity, Jack Morris, to maybe be part of a brand new club. So he decides to stay down here. Um, in fact, against his father, George, George's wish, he said, oh, there's nothing going for you here. Come back to me. He said, no, I want to stay. So he stays and becomes the first professional at the Royal Liverpool Golf Club at the age of, of 18, uh, Jack Morris. And he, he sets up here in an old horse box. There's our horse racing connection again um, the, at the back of the golf club. And he becomes the first professional here uh, at the Royal Liverpool Golf Club making balls and clubs. And he... Um, he starts to take uh, Johnny Ball under his wing as a seven, eight-year-old, but um, throughout his career to help nurture, uh, nurture him and, and encourage him. Uh, and at one stage uh, later on in his life, when he first John Ball first competes in the Open Championship in 1878, Jack Morris uh, goes up with him. He actually competes, I think, as well there but he goes up with him chaperones him up um to, to presswick sorry it's presswick uh, in 1878 to compete in his first open championship at the age of 16 so there, there's quite a connection there and but you also had uh old tom morris and young tom morris coming to the course for that first professional event at liverpool is that correct yes he he um the role of Liverpool golf club wanted to put its mark um on on the game in england so they stomp up a lot of money um to a hundred pounds in total prize money to encourage a grand tournament um to take place on their links and young tom morris old tom morris the greats of their day come down and play on the course um for this grand prize and uh, John Johnny Ball watches watches this as a seven eight. Uh, what he would have been eleven about eleven at the time, and he watches this, uh, and he must have been inspired uh, by the the play of these guys. And the day before, he actually competes himself in the uh, young boys tournament and wins the young boys um, competition himself. So there he is being inspired by these greats, but also winning his own competition the day before. And that must have been a great inspiration for him. Yeah, I just, I love that connection. You know, like f basically four different Morrises connected with Royal Liverpool at one time, whether they're playing at the event or um, designing it or being the head professional. It's a amazing tidbit into Royal Liverpool's history. It, it is, isn't it? It is. I, I um, you know, the, 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 the game slowly expanded, but, um, and it really began to take off soon after that, but it, it, it is, it's incredible that connection. But of course, our old Tom Morris had connections with so many clubs. He helped, he himself helped lay out, you know, many courses uh, around the place, you know, around the, the, around the, you know, Britain really. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward seven years. You kind of mentioned it before, but a 16 year old John Ball 
makes his national debut playing in the 1878 Open. Uh, how did the 16-year-old John Ball fare in his first Open championship? Well, uh, it was uh, a two two round competition, and he comes uh, joint fourth. Uh, and quite an achievement. One of the youngest. I'm not sure whether you, he he uh, was actually the youngest, but it was very likely to be the youngest player at the time to have played in an Open. May 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 maybe young young Tom Morris may have um, usurped him at another stage, but um, but he comes fourth, joint fourth, and he plays off for the that that the prize money, and he actually comes as it happens comes fifth because he doesn't win his 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 um, playoff match, but he he wins. One pound at his prize money. Now we don't think of one pound as being uh, much nowadays, but in those days, to a sixteen-year-old, that's a lot of money. Absolutely, and it must, yeah, it must have made him think. Well, what could I do? Where's my future lie? So, you know, exciting for a young lad, no doubt. The 1878 Open and his four, or fifth place finish essentially uh, did not come without controversy years later. Maybe you could expand upon the amateur controversy that followed John Ball later in his career. Sure, sure. Uh, because uh, accepting a prize um, prize figure, whatever it might be, but certainly money, um, technically makes you a professional, does it not? Right. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, and that would certainly be the case nowadays. So later on, of course, the, the actual... The Royal Liverpool Golf Club uh, was instigator in, in starting the first ever amateur championship in 1888. So we're talking seven or so years later. Um, but of course, technically, John Ball, the guy they want to win their amateur championship, they're hosting it, they're inaugurating it, they want him to win it. But he's, is he not? Is he not a professional? <laughs> um, so, um, slight technicality here so but the club delved a little bit deeper and they realized that no actual definition had ever been formed of what is a professional and what is an amateur so they 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 put a time scale on this that they said if basically if 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 you've received a prize money in in very when in within the last few years or so you're 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 basically a professional but if it's that long ago you could you could maintain your amateur status. So that was a clever ploy, I think, by the club. So he was technically, um, an, he was deemed an amateur, so he could then start his amateur career. So, yes. You tell another story. I think the other, like, cool story that you tell in 1885, um, you tell the story of another amateur who accepted prize money who wasn't as fortunate. Uh, what were the circumstances behind fellow amateur Douglas Rowland losing his amateur status? And never being able to regain it. Yes, he he lost his. Um, he had won uh, prize money the year before, and um, he was thus um, deemed uh, to be a professional. And uh, from there on, then he 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 had to go the professional ranks, and um, so his career was predetermined by that right i think that's fascinating right it's fascinating it is isn't it? yeah it's happenstance isn't it and and that's that's life it's like being on a golf course and saying well i've ended up in a bunker with a horrendous lie but i played a good shot sure but you have to live with these decisions don't you that, that that's certainly right. true or it, it, if it the is. 
if the first amateur happens to be played at his club versus Royal Liverpool, he's probably determined ah. an amateur, right? So circumstance <laughs> probably comes into play. I just that I love those little tidbits because you know here Roland considers himself an amateur, as does Ball, and because there were no rules of amateurism, and then you know the the rules are kind of made up when the first amateur championship takes place. I, I those are kind of the little quirky things in history that I was kind of grab onto, and I love the fact that you brought it up in your book. Yeah, it's it's a bit of fun, isn't it? And um, it, so many things happen to us in lives like that. But it obviously happened then, and um, he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't dispute it. Really, that was it. That was yeah. the way it went. It's so, the way it goes. It's, yeah, it's yeah. the rub of the green, right? The rub of the green. Indeed, yeah, rub of the green. Indeed. So, for many great golfers in history, talent alone isn't enough. John Ball Jr. had talent in abundance, but he had to learn how to win his majors. Ball in his early attempts at, at claiming major victories failed and failed again under pressure. I was wondering if you could go through some of his trials under fire before he finally broke through. You're absolutely right, Connor, um, because you thought everything's going for him, really. He's got a golf course on his doorstep. Um, soon after 1878, in 1882, actually, um, um, uh, old Tom Morris says of John Ball, who had now got down to uh, – uh, uh, plus seven, all right. It was winning everything at his home club, all the ho- all the spring and autumn medals. Tom Morris, a Scot, says that John Ball is the greatest amateur in the world today. This is 1882. This is before amateurs actually even uh, been inaugurated. Yeah, he'd be like what, 21 what years old, right? 21. Right yes, there, I think. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, and that that was what led on to the challenge match with. Uh, um, Douglas Rowland um, and of course he loses that one but he um, you, you mentioned there the the uh, how he struggled in his early early days competing in in the great tournaments so we're talking about 1885 he he wasn't able to to win that inaugural tour, uh, competition uh, the amateur championship um, he loses there um beaten in the semi-finals by Horace Hutchinson. Uh, the following year, he, he, he loses to, this time it, it's in 1886, he, he loses in the, in the semi-finals at St. Andrews to Harry Lamb. Um, so that there's, he's beginning to get quite a following by this stage. Um, uh, his local uh, supporters at Hoy Lake travel with him um, up to, to St. Andrews, but he, he, he still can't quite get there, whether it's nerves, whether it's the, I, I don't know, the uh, partisan crowd at uh, St. Andrews. What, what it is, I don't know. It's, it's, he can't quite get there. Um, but he seems to always and then be 18... right there, right? He, I mean, he's just yes. seems to be right there. And it seems to be in those critical moments. He's leading those matches or a lot of them. And then yeah. snap. And I, I think you're yes. going to touch into 1887, which I think is like one of the cruelest of them. Yeah. And you said snap there. And, and sure, because um, he um, he's in his in the final against Horace Hutchinson, an English player, a member of Westwood Ho in Devon, um, uh, an amateur in very much in as much a moneyed man and um, come from good stock, as one might say. But um 
he he's uh, as the crowds sort of start to pull in closer to him, and he's going down the sixteen. He's he. He, he he tries teeing up on the ball. In those days, there was no no tees. There was, it was just a sand tee, and he tees his ball up, and it and falls he's off. One and up, it, right? He's one up with three to play. Is he's one correct? up. Yes, one up with three to play. Going down sixteenth, and um, as he, he's, he's teeing up, he's, he, the ball falls off. Then it, he tries reteeing it. He caddy helps him out, and he, he he gets the crowds coming ever closer and whispering, and and he, he feels to play the shot, and he plays the shot, and he, his club snaps, um, and you know uh, there's an audible crack, um, and of course nowadays. Uh, doesn't it, that sort of thing really happens? We're playing Hickory Golf Clubs at the end of the day, and they are clubs that you know have a a life, um, and these things happen, and you have to find a way way through things. And he couldn't, he couldn't, he, he gets a replacement club, but he couldn't quite pull it together. And this this is 1887. This is at Hoylake again won everything at Hoylake, but he's never really won anything outside. And his supporters are there thinking, yeah, his backyard, why can't he do it? And of course, as as as, as happens, you know, crowd, some of the crowd think he, he you know, he, he hasn't got it in him. He, he really hasn't. And others say, no, he will, he will. And somehow he has to keep his composure and he doesn't win that in 1887. And all that expectation was there that he should win it, but Again, happenstance. We talk about happenstance. You know, this event happened, um, but he couldn't get over the finish line. So three amateur championships he got there and come quite made it. Were, were people starting to question his championship medal? I think so. I think so. You can never quite tell these things. And th- this is where there's, I, I have to admit, a certain poetic license um, in the book. But um, I did discover... Uh, in the clippings through the the old um, newspaper clippings, um, people say that I don't really think he. And t- typically, these a lot of these were Scots as well. Sure, obviously, yeah, right. That strong rivalry, rivalry between Scotland and England, and that's been there for donkeys' years. So the the people were questioning, and that's that's you know that's that's typical, and it certainly was there, and. Um, uh, but how strong it was, I don't know. But, um, you know, it's... Yeah, do we know if he ever questioned his own ability? I mean, he didn't write a lot about golf. He didn't write a lot about his career and how he felt. You know, he was a, he was a private man. But do we know anything about that? No, we don't. Um, you're absolutely right. He was a, He's a very private man. Um, and he kept himself to himself. Um, there's much that I try to find uh, written word from himself, as it were, about what he, you know, um, I couldn't find anything. And the great writers of the day, Bernard Darwin or whatever, would commentate a comment on his character. But um, very little is there about what he actually said. Um, so um, and the other thing we have to look at, he um, he was a farmer. Um, other amateurs of the day would have probably come from uh, good uh, educational backgrounds, would have been literate, very literate. And he was a farmer. You know, um, maybe he did his talking on the course and on and on his farm. Uh, so um, 
maybe that was the reason for it. We don't know, but he was he he was a very modest and a humble man, but also a very very fit man as well. You know, a farm farming keeps absolutely. you fit. Absolutely, absolutely, especially back then. Yeah. Yes, yes, certainly. No mechanization or very little really compared to today. And um, maybe that was a clue to some of his successes as well, uh, as well as his technical ability and his his driven sort of uh, nature as well. I'm going to jump into this later in the uh, interview here, but uh, the the stark contrast between him and the other uh, hero of Royal Liverpool, um, Harold Hilton. And I, I'm, we're gonna we'll ask you a little bit later about the swing differences, but uh, they're very much different from a personality standpoint. Had had he had a little bit more Hilton in him, uh, Hilton was a prolific writer on the game of golf and the mental side and his thoughts on old equipment versus the new technology. And we have nothing really from John Ball, which is tragic because he connects all these different generations. Right? He's he's playing with the old Tom Morrises. He's playing with. Um, you know, the, the generation that comes after with Harry Varden, you know, all the way into, you know, the 1910s, 20s for that matter. Yeah. yeah you're right. You're right. It is, it is tragic in that respect. Um, uh, it's, it's one of the big gaps that uh, I would love to have been able to evidence of, um, you know, proof of more about him as a person. But I, I, I've written between the lines, having found out as much as I possibly can. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned Harold Hilton. And yes, he, he became um, editor of uh, Golf Illustrated. And he, you're absolutely right. He wrote a lot about, technically about the game, about, um, yes, the great golfers of the day, the courses. And, um, but he came from his, his father was, um, interesting enough. His father was, um, an insurance broker, uh, for crown insurance, uh, who insured a lot of the great, um, steamers and boats that went out from Liverpool over to America or whatever. So he came from, or, and he went, he was, um, he went away to a boarding school, I think in, in Norfolk for a while. And so he came from, we talk about the differences. He came from a, a literate, um, family, not a working class family. And there's possibly the difference there, I think yeah, in many ways. For yes. sure. John Ball was certainly a working amateur. He was not a man of privilege. Which I think distinguishes him from a lot of amateurs that he, you know, competed against. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And there perhaps is a clue to maybe how popular he was, because uh, when we get on to his his successes, um, thousands turned out. Yeah, man of the people, uh, right? Yeah, man of the people. He was a man of the people because he was a farmer. Uh, People could connect with him where he was from. Um, He was... um, in later life, he, he he even fought in the Boer War. You know, he was a man of of the people and a fit fit guy that they could relate to. Um, and you know, I think he was very different from the, the more moneyed amateurs that he did compete against. Yes, indeed. Now, in 1988, John Ball, after 10 years of competitive golf, makes his breakthrough. <laughs> right after you know the 1878 yeah, open championship yeah, sure. 10 years later it's much like bobby jones right bobby jones had his seven years of his lean years he fulfills the promise of his talent he breaks through and wins yeah. his first major championship at presswick how big of a win was yeah. this for ball and for royal liverpool 
it was massive. It was massive. It was um, like sort of almost the dam of emotion had suddenly been released. You know, this young son of the club, but he's no, you know, he's a, he's a grown man now, had finally shown his potential. Finally, um, you know, after trying for so long, we'd backed him in in many ways. You know, we can, he's going to do well, but eventually he does win. He does win that uh, first amateur. It's up in Scotland. It's in Prestwick. Um, and what uh, better place to win it, right? I mean, it's the home in, of the Open indeed. Championship. It's the earliest, you know, form of major championship golf, and he wins it at that home. Yeah. Uh, yes, indeed. I, you're you're very right, uh, Conno, because that that um, the first twenty five or six years or so, uh, the open the open championship had been held up there, and and uh, the the amateur had been alternated between there, Royal Liverpool and St Andrews for quite a number of years. Yes, he he wins up there, and and I think. I mean, again, we read between the lines here. Uh, you ha- we have to understand the rivalries between the Scots Absolutely. and the English. Right. And, you know, it's a little bit of a needle put in there by by the English. You know, our man has beaten you at the, you know. Yeah, it's a better Scotland story in my opinion, or, right? I mean, he wins yeah. at the home of the Open Championship, right? He goes to Scotland, yes. an English invader, and wins over there. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, and I, that, I think, probably got people talking uh, up in Scotland. And uh, um, and that's where, you know, the Scotsman newspaper or whatever was, was the prime, one of the prime newspapers of writings on golf, um, you know, uh, and, and they had to sort of almost eat humble pie a little bit, really, perhaps, um, because – and – Old Tom Morris, of course. Tom Morris, you know, he said he he was one of the best and he had proved himself the best now. And perhaps, you know, people should stand up and take listen. And they they had to, really. Yeah, I mean, I think if he wins wins the prior year at, uh, you know, at Liverpool, I think it could almost be chalked up as, well, you know, he knew the course better than anybody else. But by winning over on, you know... uh, on, on visitors as a visitor on foreign soil. Um, I think it really establishes him that much greater for a first, you know, historic major championship. It it, it does. Yes. Yeah. You're you're very right there, Connor. Um, and and it was the start of something, you know, that would continue for the next 25 years, 30 years, really almost. Before we jump into the most important years in golf history, in my book, the year of 1890, I thought maybe we could speak a little bit about the thoughts of golf professionals versus amateur counterparts against their amateur counterparts in this era of golf. How were professionals perceived from a social class standpoint compared to amateurs and how were amateurs perceived from their playing abilities during that 30 year early period of major championship golf at the open? That's a fascinating question, Connor, and and I it, it's it's a really good question because it puts the game of golf, professional and amateur golf, in context really. Because uh, professionals in the era we're talking about uh, were working class men who made a living from first of all making clubs and balls, being professionals in their own at their own club, but also 
increasingly more and more were making money from challenge matches as well. Uh, you had some great, great players who did that. Young Tom Morris, old Tom Morris himself, um, Willie Park, um, Andrew Kakadi. These were working class, hard, hardened men um, who would either they would stomp up or more often um, backers would stomp up money uh, to a challenge to other professionals and winner takes all. And the mass of the people would go out and, and watch these great matches and they'll be bigged up in the press and, and the local communities in uh, round St Andrews and Prestwick and uh, Edinburgh and, and, that's how professionals made. And if you you were if you won the matches, you were, you could be in some good money. But um, it was hand to mouth for a lot a lot of those professionals. For the amateur, the amateur uh, typically already had money. He uh, often was a literate man coming from uh, a good background. Uh, money had already come to him. We're talking about him, really, and it is a more, pretty much an all-male game now uh, at this stage. Um, it had come to him through business ventures, um, through family connections. Or family um, money, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And they didn't have to earn money for a living uh, from golf. Um, they played golf as uh, a pastime, which was seen to be a sport, uh, a respected sport. And the competition of winning and losing was a, match, a matter of pride and um, skill and technique. But because they didn't play all their lives um, for money, um, the the um, there was there was a difference between those. There was a talent gap. Amateurs. Yeah, a talent gap. Yes, there was a talent gap. Yeah, uh, most definitely. And then John Ball, of course, he's not a moneyed man. Um, he was a working class amateur, and we've already talked about the distinction between him and and most of the amateurs of the day. Um, he sort of was. Um, he, so his the significance of his win um, was was you know quite considerable. Um, okay, the amateur in 1888, but later on uh, when he starts competing uh, more successfully in the Open Championship against the professionals of the day, um, then then people had to stand up and take note. So you, you, you're very right. It's, it's a very interesting social distinction between the professional, the type of person the professional was, and the amateur, uh, most definitely, yes, indeed. And there's definitely, there's at least at that point in time, or still in that point in time, there's a very different social status. Like the the yes. the professional was... I, I, I don't know the best way to put it. I would say almost a second-class citizen to the amateur. Is that fair? I <laughs> yes, think that's pretty was, fair. I mean, they weren't allowed – the professionals weren't allowed is, in the clubhouse, right? Um, yeah, they weren't. <laughs> and in those early days, a lot they of them, at all. They would, right or wrong, were considered, you know, drunkards. That You know, a guy who would gamble up whatever penny yeah. he had in his pocket. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. And uh, would be treated as – uh, they were put down a lot by the members of the main club. He, they, they were, you're right. They they would often gamble and drink their money, their earnings away, and they would look would certainly look down on. And yeah, not, not being allowed in the clubhouse. 
you know, um, <laughs> it's um, how things have changed. Hey, so uh, true. Thank goodness. In right? today's game. Yes, indeed. So as I mentioned in the previous question, uh, 1890 was a pivotal year in golf. I don't know if it's truly, I don't know if we could call it a turning point, but it certainly was a historic one. It starts off with the 1890 amateur and ball facing off against a younger but equally brilliant amateur who also plays his golf at a Royal Liverpool. Can you compare and contrast the two brilliant superstars coming out of Royal Liverpool? Yeah, the, the, the we're talking about Wilson here um, and um, John Ball. Um, yeah, the the John Ball was the, he he's he's very different from Harold Hilton um, in in their swings and their backgrounds um, and. Howard Hilton is is more flamboyant. He's more uh, he, his his swing as he follows through. He's very often his hat would fall off. It's a flamboyant swing. Anyway, young Tom Quite Morris kind of swing, place. right? <laughs> yes, young all young Tom it. Morris had. Yeah, yeah, he he had some swing. He he had a certain amount of, of style in his swing, but he it, it was a dashing style, and um, along with his character, most uh, you know, most definitely his, his character was a, a dashing, um, almost Bonnie Prince Charlie type character. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, and and you know, and that's what made him attractive, I think, as well as his ability to win, and um, you know, uh, that brought in masses to to watch him play. Um, John Ball was very um, more reticent. Um, whether you call him a typical um, Englishman, slightly um, stiff upper lip, I don't know. Uh, but very, very modest, uh, very humble, um, self-contained, yeah. driven. It seems um, that their swings match their personalities. Is that you know what I mean? <laughs> Yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see photographs of 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 Harold Hilton. He had he had white shoes on. Now, who who plays with white shoes? Somebody who's got a bit of jaunty swagger well, flash, and confidence. Right? Yeah. Would you not? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got to have a bit of balls to do that sort of thing. But John Ball tailored. Um, he's uh, red top, um, uh, knee length socks. He wore the weeds of the day but he also um but he there was nothing of any show offness in his in his nature and in, in the way he looked and the way he swung he he was very self-contained a very elegant swing um i think yeah yeah so john ball he, he beats his fellow liverpool player royal liverpool player and uh how does that turn out for he's playing the uh if i'm not um, incorrect here. He's playing the amateur championship at Royal Liverpool, so he's got a chance for redemption. How does that turn out for him? Well, he's he's playing the uh, amateur champ in 1890s. He he um, uh, he's playing the the amateur is he wins at at Hoylake. That's right. Um, and he he finally. I mean, everybody expected all to win, and and he did. Um, it was it was a uh, uh, you know the massive jubilation 
uh, at Hoylake. Finally, you know, there's a win for John Ball, but they're both, you know, that they, they, um, you know, the two great sons, you know, win, uh, are there in the final. Uh, and, you know, what could be better? What could be better? It's a win-win. For the club. A win-win, yes, indeed. Yeah, 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 yeah. A win, a win for the for the club. But it was John Ball who got over the line. He had he had eight years on on Howard Hilton, of course. So perhaps a little bit more maturity and um, that maybe got him over that line and and technical ability. I think that certainly at that stage in it, in his life and in, in the two careers. So yeah, he wins in at uh, Yamato there. Yeah, in um, September of 1890, the Open Championship returns to a course that, with fond memories for John Ball Prestwick, in his first Open in 1878, there were only 27 competitors. Now, 12 years later, the field has 164. Remarkably, this was only John Ball's. Was it his second or his third Open Championship in his career? How did he fare in the 1890 Open? Well, the distinction you make there of the, the entry numbers is, is you know, in the space of, what, 12 years Staggering. we're talking about. Uh, it is, isn't it? Um, you, beating 20-odd players at once, you know, is one thing. Building, beating a field of, of that number, you've got to have something really special about you. And, and you're talking about uh, Presswick, Typical links course. Uh, you're fighting the Scots, you know, as well as their home course. And as much as you're not just fighting the 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 competitors you're you're playing against, you're fighting a crowd as well who are jeering. You know, you you, you don't have a respectful crowd that you have nowadays in golf. You you if if people were, you know, they'll quite easily knock a ball which is on the fairway into 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 a bunker. Yeah, you know, without there, thinking were, about there it, weren't you know? ropes back and then, right? We're not playing with there ropes. There were no ropes. And, yeah, people were wandering all over yeah, the place. And, yeah, and um, you know that this guy had had had, had won the amateur. Okay, two years bef- beforehand at Presswick, but um, okay, okay. You know, eighteen ninety. You come up here. You think you can uh, beat us, our professionals, at an Open Championship? But he, his, he, he, he holds himself together. Um, coming down the last, he, he. Um, there's not a flinch of um, from him uh, in any regard. It's down the middle, down the middle, right up until the end. And um, when he he gets over the line, the the crowd just cannot quite believe what has just happened. Um, the uh, it was inconceivable, inconceivable, right? <laughs> yes, yes. The, the um, you know, an amateur beating. Professionals at their own game up in Scotland, and an Englishman, and again know, at uh, Prestwick, uh, the home of the Open. Again, you know, <laughs> yes, a repeat yeah, theme yeah. here going on. He's just sticking it I to the Scots. So. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so, I think it was that win that finally got him real proper recognition, uh, uh, really from the world of golf. Um, and as we know, there are only three amateurs who have ever won the Open Championship, uh, the great Bobby Jones, of course, and Howard Hilton was to do so um, a few years later. But he was the, the pioneer here. And he um, 
Scotland, I, I, I do believe, finally woke up here that you know the, the game is a different game than than just the game up in Scotland. It really is. We, you know, uh, we have to take note of this man, and and he was the. Uh, uh, you know, he he started a trend which was carried on you know, from other Englishmen, you know, the Vardens, the J.H. Taylors, the, you know, and Harold Hilton himself later on. But that he was, you you say, sort of, um, it was a, a pivotal moment, I think, in, in, yeah, in the I'll game of golf. In, I'll put uh, it in perspective for the, our listeners here. Um, essentially, in when I, I just make a mark of three things. He becomes the first amateur to win a professional major. He became the first Englishman to win a professional major championship. And he effectively yeah. is the first golfer in golf history to win two majors in the same year. A lot of people don't think of yeah. that. But yeah, he wins the 1890 British Amateur or the Amateur Championship and then the Open. So what drove John Ball to excel at golf? Do we know? I mean, was it his love for the game or did he? I mean, he didn't seem to really care about the accolades. He didn't. Um, he... He shied away from the praise that was heaped on him. Um, he he really, honestly, deep down, I don't think he he wanted it. He wanted. He's a, he's a very self-contained man. Um, I I think he enjoyed his own company. He enjoyed the challenge of the skill of the game of golf, pitting yourself against the the elements against your fellow man as it were uh the cut and thrust of the game in the same way he is a farmer um you you know you, you don't achieve much in farming unless you put in certainly in those days a lot of hard graft manual work out in the fields to bring in the bring in the harvest and you know working your horses to, to make it happen um so he there's this I think inner resolve and drive deep, deep inside him. Um, and what he thought about the, the accolades that were coming from maybe, I don't know, uh, moneyed uh, social classes, which were, mm, I don't know, a bit different from his own. Um, uh, he, at every time, every opportunity he swerved, that um, that recognition and 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 went back into himself and his life back home. Um, so it, it, it's it's a fascinating um, uh, study of of you know I, I, I was, this is what I was trying to get at in my book and this is what what I wanted to get to the nub of and I I think I have but we shall never hundred percent know. Um, why he shunned that? But that's my looking at all the evidence. That's my. I think he was a very self-contained man, um, and maybe because he, maybe because he wasn't especially literate. Maybe um, he, he he didn't easily mix in those social circles that um, that you know, he was a, was a expected of him. So he, he did his job. He won. He went away. He enjoyed that inner satisfaction, no doubt. But that's as far as it went, I think, for him. Yeah. Yeah. So we fast forward a couple years. We're looking at the Amateur Championship of 1892, where John Ball is facing off against his Royal Liverpool nemesis, Harold Hilton, in the finals. And John Ball, he's charging on his opponent, and he has 
let's face it, it happened to him a lot. Maybe it happens to a lot of golfers, but it seems to always happen to, to John Paul in the finals or down the final stretch. He has a, a bad bit of luck and he hits a 150 yard marker and it looks lost for him. And yeah. describe in the book, one of the, maybe, maybe it goes down as the greatest shot of his career, but maybe go through how John Ball takes that bad luck and, and turns it around. Yeah, the, uh, th- this was this was perhaps um, uh, in many ways it sort of typified his nature. Uh, when bad luck came his way, he just took it in his stride and just carried on. Uh, let's not dwell on it. So here we here we have um, a man who's playing uh, his shot, uh, and he's so accurate that the ball hits a marker post, um, and the crowd. Uh, gasp and and the, it ricochets off into a into a, a, a poor lie and he, he he his opponent thinks well I've I've got him one here right. I've, I've Hilton, um, Hilton knows know, he's got him I, right I've, yeah I've got him but uh, it, it ricochets so far back it's still John John Ball to play so he gets to his ball and it, and um, even even Howard Hilton's father's there is thinking standing by his man thinking. He's got him now. He's got him now. But within an instant, he sets up, he plays his shot, and he plays it onto the green. And his opponent's astounded that, you know, within a blink of an eye, he, he barely even saw his opponent play his next shot. And what would have deemed to have been a uh, um, uh, something which would have thrown people sideways, you know, he turned it round in an instant and Hilton is on the back foot again. Um, and uh, it's a bit of a dagger blow really for, oh, for Hilton. And he, he never properly recovers from that. Um, no, he doesn't. Uh, this is it's a sandwich. So, um, yeah, yeah, that, uh, it was quite typical of his of his character. Really, how do you how do you react in adversity? Yeah, never well, complaint. You just bore through it, right? Yeah, and we know what the game of golf is like. You you will always get bad luck, uh, but you have to deal with it. That's life, you know. And and he dealt with bad luck extremely well. He struggled in his early years, but I, as time went on, and maybe that's partly to do with his own inner belief and skill and and um, who he was as a man. Well, he didn't, he and, never you know. really had anything easy, right? I mean, he was a farmer. No. He had to take over when he took yeah. over his grandfather's farm. It was in kind of disrepair. I mean, he, he knew how to yep. work for it. He did. He did. Um, his grandfather's farm was um, was in extremely poor condition when he took over. He he had to uh, he had to repair some of the buildings. He had to invest some of his hard graft into that and dredge the ditches. You know, it's uh, the area behind where he was farming was poor land, really very flat, poor land and poorly drained. And if you're going to get anything out of, of um, a piece of land as a farmer, you've certainly where he was farming, he had to put in, uh, put in a hard graft and he did. And he, he got his return certainly from his farming there. Um, and he, maybe he took that onto the course, you know? Uh, um, yeah. It's, it was part of who he was as a farmer as much as, as a golfer, really, that not many people I think are fully aware of. Yeah. I think it, it, what's staggering about that too is, so he wins the 1892 amateur, uh, which would end up being his uh, third 
amateur championship. And of course he has that open. So he has four majors, which in that given time in history essentially ties him with the immortal Willie Park senior, old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris. So again, it kind of ties back into the, the Morris family connection. And, you know, he's trying to identify with those folks. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was so just fast forward. He he wins another amateur. He wins his sixth major championship by winning the 1899 amateur at Prestwick again, by the way. Right. Um, Yeah. He he wins in 1894 as well. Thank uh, you. At Hoylake. Um, Yeah. Um, So he wins there as well. So he wins the 1899 amateur. And within a year, he takes a break in the championships to serve his country in time of war. And it would be another eight years until John Ball won his seventh major championship at the age of 45. And he'd win his eighth major in 1910 at the age of 48. I understand the gap and the war, but how did John Ball fare over those, those years after the war? What do you think was the issue there for him getting to the, the finish line? So the war we're talking about is the Boer war. Yeah. The, um, eight, the 1900 um, Boer War in South Africa. Um, now, he, he was, he was a vol- there was no obligation for him to, to sign up and fight in the Boer War. Uh, he was a volunteer in the Den- Denby Yeomanry. Um, and I think it took a lot of people by surprise that he decided to sign up. And uh, he goes out there and he fights uh, in the Boer War. He's very, very nearly killed. He, he comes back with um, quite a, a nasty scar on, on his cheek from a bullet, which, um, you know, just grazed him. Um, he's he's he's. Um, he's he's quite a almost a hero there because there's one incident un, under real heavy fire, enemy fire. Um, he goes out and rescues a man who's trapped underneath a horse, a charger, uh, there, and he pulls him out and pulls him to safety. And this is witnessed by uh, some of his colleagues, and uh, quite a heroic feat and thing to do. And he comes back. Um, uh, he's out there almost a year or so, and he he comes back and uh, uh, great praise his son for the uh, for for the fact that he fought in, in the war, and and he thought, well, this is why you 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 know, as he returns at Hoylake Station, all these people welcome him home, and hundreds of people welcome him home. He said, well, I, I'm just a normal person like anybody else. I just fought in the war, and and I'm lucky enough to have survived, and that's all he thought of, but. Um, maybe in the back of his mind is that he would have also thought about all those people who didn't survive. Absolutely. Including and the great Freddie Tate. Including the great Freddie Tate. Freddie Tate um, was a professional soldier from Scotland, of course, and he was the great amateur hope for, for Scottish golf. And he, in some respects, he was a young Tom Morris of his time and bagpipe player he had won um at hoylake in one of the amateur championships and he celebrated by playing the bag bagpipes down the high street um and in the clubhouse um celebrating his win you know a, a real bold character but um highly respected character both in scotland and, yeah, and you in can England still for that feel matter. his presence in in scotland today i truly believe that yeah 
Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's a blue plaque on the house where he he grew up in Edinburgh, and um, and he was a great loss to golf. Um, he was buried out in um, in Kudisburg Ridge, I think, where he um, he fell, and the he was extremely sad loss to golf. Um, John Ball was happy, glad, you know, lucky enough to survive, but Freddie. Tate didn't and who knows how his career Freddie Tate's career might have evolved and how the two of them would have challenged one another for the next few years of golf if he had survived so that was one of the sad episodes of that that period of time um but yeah 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 and uh, whilst he was away, uh, John Ball's away fighting, Harold Hilton wins in 1900 and 1901 at the Amateur. And um, that says something. Maybe um, John Ball was at the pinnacle of his golf. And finally, Harold Hilton, the other, the you know, the the, the well-known son of, of the Royal Liverpool Golf Club, he takes advantage and wins whilst he's away. Um, but it must have affected John Ball that period of time fighting out there. I can only imagine. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, it must have had a big effect on him in, in many ways. And um, what he must have reflected on what's life all about in many ways. We, you know, all fighting, killing, uh, winning golf. Well, what does that really mean in the great scheme of things? All this adulation that was thrown upon him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he's does an amateur, really- so it's not even for profit. No, that's right. You know, he, um, you know, uh, so he. I think he must have found it difficult to come back to England. And um, sure, he he threw himself into his farming and 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 his, his golf. And amazingly enough, he still does pretty well in the local competitions nearby. And um, and um, but it took a while for him. You're absolutely right. 1907 was his next win. Um, you know, he's getting on in age, of course, by this absolutely. stage. <laughs> he's, he's not a young spring chicken. Um, yeah, he's and he 45, wins. right, for his seventh major yeah. championship. And then he's 48 for his eighth, which is yeah. remarkable. Yeah, it, it is, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, that, that, to have been through all that you've been through in life and he had experience and um, he, he, he finally wins after so many attempts at St. Andrews in uh, 07. Um, and his invisible nemesis, St. Andrews. Yes, yes, he had tried. He had tried so many times and when he had gone up there and I think it was 86 and competed in the amateur there and he had, he couldn't come to terms with this unusual course, these bonkers and whatever and uh, and he 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 walks off the course without even handing in his card and parallels do you do that, with Bobby Jones, right? I <laughs> To Bobby Jones as a 19-year-old in, in 1921, where he tore up his card at St Andrews as well. So that course, that course has yeah. an effect on people. Let's face it. It does. Um, I, 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 have you played the course? Card? I have. You're, you're, I loved sure it. I, I was. I, I think there are some people that just don't get it the first time. I, you know, as a lover of history, I was in awe the entire time. And you know, yes, <laughs> I put it in some bunkers where I was like, "How the heck did this happen?" But at the same time. I guess my my 
my take on it, of course, I'm not playing for an open championship or an amateur, but my take on it was good for you, old lady. Way to get me on that one. You know, because you hit right down the middle, you take a bad bounce and you're in a deep bunker. Yep. yep. So, yeah, I definitely get yep. that. Yeah, get out of that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we were just talking about how he wins in 1910. He's 48 now. Uh, most history books on the game of golf uh, claim that Julius Boros is the oldest major championship winner. But in 1912, mm. at the age of 50, John Ball wins his ninth and final major. How did John Ball yep. Jr., at the age of 50, 34 years after his first major he plays in, how does he win the amateur championship against the people in that field? Are Some of them are less than twice his age. He just, I, I think, you know, Con, I think he wins it through sheer grit, determination, experience. Um, but he'd also, over the many years of playing on Lynx Golf, he'd developed a technique of playing the ball in the wind. Uh, he won at St. Yeah. Andrews in 07. Yeah, it is. In 07, the, the weather was atrocious. The wind was, you know, uh, incredible. And, and the rain as well. Um, but he hung in there. He, he dug deep. And maybe he had to do that in, in South Africa in the Boer War. And he had to do that on his farm. And he had to do that. And that's who he was as part of He He, he, he was a fighter. Um, and... I think that Westwood Ho, where he did win his last um, major, um, is in, in Devon, and, and it's an extremely exposed course. It is really very, very flat, and you, you just you look out, and the wind comes straight in um, off the the RSC, and um, he had an ability to play a cleco, which is, we're talking about uh, roughly a three hour nowadays, and. Um, as Bernard Darwin and and he often put it, he said I'd made it be able to play the club just the right height for the. And we, <laughs> you, you, we all know if you you play a ball, and it, you put it up in the air when you've got a twenty-five mile an hour wind blowing, it doesn't go anywhere. Nowhere. <laughs> I hit I hit the ball high enough to know that for a fact. <laughs> So we, he's yeah he he's developed this technique that the ball, ball it bores it through the wind and it punches it low and hard um, with a tiny bit of topspin and um, and draw on it that um, you know gets the ball running and running and running and I think it was it was that and his 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 ability to really fight and make use of the experience that he had gained over all those years throughout not just golf but life that got him through to that final win um and you say at the age of 50, of 50 to do yeah. that i mean it's such a <laughs> big deal i mean I, I like to peruse through all the historical periodicals but this is like one of those pivotal moments in history where the win was so important that it easily made its way over to our shore. The American golfer ran, I think, a one or two page article about this amazing victory of John Ball at the age of 50, pushing back father time, my words, not theirs, <laughs> fighting back yes, father okay. time to win his fi final, you know, his ninth major, his ninth. That's unreal. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, I, I, 50. Um, I'm not privy to, you know, I, I, I'm, 
and that's news to me about how it was greeted in the states because I haven't had um, heard it, read anything up about how it was you know, reports in the states as much. But it's, uh, that's interesting to hear. But it was, and I think it always brought brought into perspective because the year before, Harold Hilton had just won the amateur championship in Apawamis mm-hmm. in the states as that's well. Right. So the um, uh, and he had he had won both the amateur championship in the states and the British amateur as well over here in nineteen first time ever, which yeah. is first time ever, indeed. So maybe I don't maybe that was it brought the attention uh, to the Americans of of um, you know the, the, these these English guys, and and then they suddenly were, found out in nineteen twelve that it was five decades old. It, Yes. <laughs> what, what was this? I think it yeah. was yeah, it was 34 years after he played in his first major. 34 years. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I just I still yeah. think of that. It's just staggering to me. It is. It is. It is. You've got to have some technique. You and what we're talking about amateur golf here, it's not just four rounds of golf. You've to get to a final and to win it, you've got to play six or seven rounds of golf day in, day out, and sometimes quite often 36 holes a day at the age of 50. That's that's remarkable. I'm 46. Uh, measure- I'm 46, and my back hurts <laughs> just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He must have been a fit, fit guy, you know, uh, and uh, and. Uh, truly masterful player to be able to to do to win at that um you know at that age uh, yet again um yeah and uh, and the, the other remarkable thing is he, he comes back on the train oh i love this story from yes. devon yes tell this story yeah the, so good yeah the, the, it speaks he, to he him right it is literally train. who he is this story i i think so he um to, to put it in perspective westwood ho in north devon is a good probably about 200 miles or so. It's a, a tortuous journey back from there to Hoylake um, on the train. And he comes back on the train uh, with all his clobber and his gear. And, um, you know, he's just one at the age of 50, as we've been talking about, his ninth major. And, of course, he uh, he is Hoylake's greatest son. So the whole of Hoylake turns out to to greet him here off the, off the train in 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 at Hoylake station, and he gets news of this of uh, this crowd sort of waiting for him, and he he something in his brain we've been we've been talking about this he sort of says do I really want this do I really want to have to go through all this again he he gets off the train a stop early and walks back along the beach to his hotel to his to his his home which is the royal hotel and all this crowd are there waiting for him and he's not there <laughs> That's so good he's not there where so is good. he you know, the, you know, the, the disciple has arrived but he hasn't um and it would, it would all went a bit flat really of course and then of course they they trapped him down and realized he, he's gone back because they, they knew he was on the train and and um and he had to i think he eat, eat humble pie a little bit and i think he was encouraged by his sister who had a strong one of his sisters he had elizabeth he had a very strong close relationship all his life uh to, to sort of come out and say look come on John, uh, you, you've all these people have turned out. They're they're there because they love you. 
and they want to praise you and they want to say thanks and well done, you owe it to them to come out and, and sort of greet them. And, it, and he did because uh, they'd all turned up at, by this stage now at the, the hotel outside and, and he, he spoke to them afterwards. But um, that was perhaps a great insight, as you, as you hinted at there, Connor, of uh, yeah. the nature of the man. Yeah, he, he, he was self-contained. He didn't want the adulation that was thrust thrown upon him he just wanted to be himself um and you know all that he's gone through in his life fighting in the war and seeing atrocities you know this was a game of golf that he won and he enjoyed it for the moment and the time but you know that's as far as it went he wanted to get back to his old world but the old world had wanted to to embrace him and and he he reluctantly i think accepted that um but yeah, it, it was it encaptured really. I think the essence of the man and who he was by that act really uh, at the uh, at the station at Hoylake. Yeah, it's a perfect bookend. Yes. It's a perfect bookend. I mean, that's just. I mean, it just tells you everything you need to know about the man. Is you know what's the fuss about? I'm just going to get off and walk along the beach for a bit. Let a couple <laughs> thousand yeah. people hang out at the train station. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I, so, uh, I'd yeah, love yeah. your, you know, we've been going on for over an hour here, Alistair. I've really enjoyed it. I, I think you could probably tell, but I'd love to hear your yeah. parting thoughts. Um, what would you like the listeners to take away from your book, Hoylake Hero, and the story of John Ball? Um, it's a very good question. I would, I suppose it, I'd like our listeners to, to really want to get to know a man who perhaps many may not know too much about. Uh, he was a man of his time, uh, of his era, um, and he speaks a lot of the history of the game, of what happened at the turn of the century, uh, both socially uh, and, you know, tournament-wise, in the, in the history of the game. Um, uh I'd, I'd hope that people would find uh, a fascination that, that I certainly did in discovering a man who was a complex man in some respects, um, but it, uh, a very humble man. And that really we have to take in context what golf is about. It is a game. It's a game we love. It's a game that... Uh, hopefully, well, thousands have played, we know have played over the years. It is a, a little microcosm of life. And we we have to take the, the good and the bad about the game. Uh, and th that's what life is about sometimes. We'll, we'll throw us good deals and bad deals. But he was a man who, um, it didn't come easy to him. His lot was... Uh, not written in stone. Yeah, and he's truly the everyman. I mean, you've we've heard he all these different. stories, that, you know, about all these great champions. But out of all of them, out of all of them, I can't think of one that really tells you the story of the everyman more than John Ball. I mean, he's a farmer. You know, he's not a professional. He's not a, a lawyer. No. He doesn't work in an accounting firm or you know an insurance company. This is a working guy. I mean, he missed. I, I, I might be exaggerating here, but I think he missed thirteen Open Championships in the prime of his career. 
because he had to work. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. There were times when, sorry, uh, I'll, I'll, when he was asked, could you, could you, uh, you think about playing? Well, it all depends on whether I could get the harvest in, or, or you know, I've got to sort my own house in order first of all, because that's my livelihood. <laughs> Golf is something that comes to some extent second, much that I love it. Um, you know, and um, he was a time. Uh, uh, and the second greatest amateur in the world that has ever lived. And we know Bobby Jones, absolutely. He, he, he is the, the greatest, but he, he was of a slightly different generation. He had a similar wonderful style as far as swing was concerned, but he came in a generation just a little bit later um, where travel was a lot easier he was a different personality in many ways and um he came as his career finished bobby jones started and that alludes to the end of the book um uh it's in many ways i i think you can't easily compare the two men because they are very different men but in some respects both were very humble very modest men and um from very different backgrounds, from uh, the background in, in, in England where John Ball grew up, you know, sort of 50, 40, 50 years earlier to the, 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 the background where Bobby, Bobby Jones grew up was the circumstances were, were different and opportunities were slightly different. Take it, be it you know, the Great Depression, obviously, had come when uh, Bobby was starting out his career. But... Um, yeah, he was a Johnny Ball was a man of man of the people. He he, he certainly was, and and I hope that that readers can actually f- discover that and maybe look at look at the game of golf in slightly more sort of uh, informed light as a, as a result of that, and and treasure perhaps the the opportunities we do get to play the game in a in a slightly different way. So. Alistair, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. But can you tell folks how how can they buy Hoy Lake Hero? How do they go about purchasing your book? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for mentioning that, Connor. Yeah, um, I have a, a website, which is uh, www.hoylakehero.com. And uh, you can put a, uh, those interested, if people are interested, they can put an order there and I will send books all around the world, you know, if, if people are interested and uh, want to hear, want to discover more about what I've written there and, and bring the man to life a little bit. Yeah, www.hoylakehero.com. Um, and I'm happy to send any, any copies, anybody who might be interested out, out to people um, all around the world. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you so much, Alistair. I really enjoyed the entire talk. It was fantastic. I I loved your company, Connor, and it's a real privilege to to, to be on uh, Talking Golf and um, to be a, one of many who've um, you've helped um, through your the work you've done on Talking Golf just to inform listeners all around the world, you know, about um, different aspects of golf, its traditions, uh, interesting talking points, and it, it's it's another avenue which is you know brought great great understanding now to, and and a love and appreciation of the game so um you know thank you for all you do and it's a real, 
real, as I say, real privilege to to have been on your show uh, today, and and I wish you and your listeners every every best wish with their challenges for the for the in the game of golf, and uh, you know it's uh, it's it's a great game, and we we love it, but it's frustrating as well. But that's the nature of the that's game. So true, so true. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't do this show without folks like yourself. I, I really couldn't even imagine putting together the content. And at one time, I was going to do a a golf from the fringe, which was a narrated version of the story. And I just think it's so much better represented uh-huh. when I have an expert like yourself, who's written a book about the subject matter coming on, sharing their passion about, you know, the, the subject of our, our talk. And it's just fantastic. So thank you. No, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Connor. Yeah. Well, for all of you listening out there in podcast land, I hope you enjoyed the story of the underrated champion, John Ball. His place at Royal Liverpool is certainly secure, but my hope is that after listening to this podcast, it's secure within your hearts as well. John Ball, winner of nine major championships, the first amateur to win the Open, the oldest major champion, war hero, and a true working golfer who missed out on 18 Open championships during the prime of his career, deserves to be remembered as one of the golfing immortals. Thank you, Alistair, for joining the show today. Thank you all at home at work, and in the car for tuning in. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Mm -hmm.